Well, ladies and gentlemen, I finally did it. I finally bit the bullet, and I finally went to London for the first time since the OG lockdown in March. And, uh, you know, it wasn't during commute hours, so it wasn't that bad people-wise, but you know what? I think I'm okay, but we've left way two weeks on that one. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Fifth Moment Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Um, yeah man, it was, it, to be honest right, it wasn't that bad for me. And you know, like I said, it was, it was, it was during commute, it wasn't during commute hours, like it wasn't like, during 6, say, six 7, 8am, like I can imagine that being a bloodbath, right, <laughs> just a petri dish of, uh, of, of not goodness, but um, you know, in terms of people, it wasn't that bad. You know, I think most people are relatively um, fine with the f- mask life now. I think uh, I think it was pretty decent on that front. Um, some I saw a I saw a woman uh, walking dur- in uh, in London Bridge, um, no mask, and uh, I saw I saw one of those teens going. If you if you ain't wearing a mask, you're getting like a six k fine. I'm like, whoo, playing with fire, love. You are playing with the fire. <laughs> 6k fine i'm cool thank you very much i'll pop this mask on and keep it moving <laughs> fuck you know <laughs> oh man but yeah apart from that it's relatively decent um i think people are being okay and uh, you know like i said I wasn't during any peak hours so you know i wasn't really uh stressing on that front uh but yeah man it was um with that caveat it was, uh, it was pretty decent but to be honest uh it was it was all it was it was not exactly the first thing on my mind. Um, I was just like nauseous all day. Like my stomach was just doing like just not cooperating with me. Um, like I couldn't eat for most of the day. <laughs> uh, not until I like got home, to be honest. Um, like I, I had to on the way on the way into London. I had to like stop at West Ham, and I literally just sat there like on the platform for like twenty minutes just to breathe. And just not vomit. <laughs> I was just... I don't know what was wrong with me, man. I don't know if it was, like, anxiety. Or, you know, it couldn't have been what I ate. Like, I did have a flu jab recently. So, it may have been that. Who knows? But, yeah, man. Um, it was just... I was just... I was just out of it, man. I was just... I was just not 100%. It was just annoying. And the fact that I can still, like, travel and stuff and do work. But not to the best of my ability. Like, if, if I'm not... If I'm not going to be able to... Like, if I'm going to be ill, I'm going to be ill, you know what I mean? I hate being in that middle ground where, like, I'm not that ill to, like, you know, okay, I'm going home because I'm just, I'm just, like, I'm, I'm just not able able to do anything, you know what I mean? I was able to do stuff, you know what I mean? That's just annoying. I hate half-assing stuff, and I basically had to because I was just like, this is, all, this is all I could do. It's the best I can do, but it just pisses me off in hindsight. But anyway, apart from that, not a bad week. Well, I say that it was an annoying week to be honest. Like, there's a lot of annoying shit going on right now. Um, just personally, it's just really fucking annoying. Um, just a lot of stuff irritating me, and I'm just like, ah, ah, ah. I just want to, I don't know, just headbutt some headbutt a wall sometimes. So, so much. Welcome with people, man. Welcome with people. That's all I'll say. 
But anyway, apart from that, solid week. Um, got a good slate for, uh, for this episode. Got two live film and TV in the sports segments. And uh, yeah, man. Oh, without further ado, let's just jump right in. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing else for me to report personally. Uh, before we begin, formats before we begin, email to us IG, Facebook as well. And uh, well, I say Facebook. It's gonna be. <laughs> Is that is that is, is that time again where I have to talk about deleting Facebook? And I probably won't. But, but we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, Discord link, everything's in the full show notes. Go pick the full show notes and support anybody, everyone that's uh, helping make this show possible. 90% of that's me, support me. Thank you very much for listening, as always. And without further ado, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where Banksy's Show Me the Monet has sold for £7.5 million pounds, uh, after public backlash towards the Tories over Marcus Rashford's proposal for kids' school meals, Tories are now de- t- demanding a U turn from the government. Hmm. How funny. You know, y- y- you know you're in the wrong when Nigel Farage is on the side of common sense. Like, Jesus Christ, how fucking tweaked. Do you have to be as a government? How tweaked do you have to be? Uh, I I posted um, I posted a video of um, uh, a, like a clip of uh, the classic Looney Tunes scene uh, where uh, Bugs and uh, Daffy are going like uh, duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, and, and uh, Bugs keeps finessing Daffy uh, <laughs> to get him to say duck season fire. And he gets obviously he gets clipped several times and his mouth always goes certain places. If you ever see that clip, like where have you been? Like you, you must be under the age of eighteen, like at least. Like please go peep it. Just just type up Looney Tunes, uh, Rabbit Season, you'll find it. Classic clip. Um and uh it was literally that. That's literally how I saw the Tories like talking about like doing all this um spin doctoring during um, you know, politics live and all those Andrew Marshall and all that shit, right? And the, there was one like Jeremy Hunt going like, the Labour government um, uh, put this in to make us look bad. I'm like, right, and like, <laughs> like you knew what was happening then. Like, so you willingly said duck season fire. Like, at least, at least, at least Daffy was getting finessed. You just, you just said to yourself, duck season fire, and you knew full well what they were doing. Like, you are some fucking idiots. Like, <laughs> I can't even fathom how stupid you have to be. Like, you knew the Labour government were doing this for a reason. And regardless if it was for a politics reason, you know, trying to get one over on you, or if they, you know, really care about the kids, regardless of the reasoning, right, regardless of which, right, the fact that you just said duck season fire and just shot yourself in the face you lot are some fucking idiots. You really fucking are. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, Lewis Hamilton dominates the Portuguese GP to achieve his world record-breaking 90-second win. Goat, as well, I have to say. Amy Coney Barrett is sworn in as Trump's third Supreme Court Justice. Um, I, I, I have to ask some of my American friends, right? Do you, do you like, fully believe you're in a democracy right now? Because like, that, that shit was so rushed. That's some... That's some authority. Is it authoritarian? I forget the specific um, ism uh, for that kind of stuff. But 
that ain't democratic. That that ain't democratic. <laughs> like that, that ain't that ain't. She literally had like interviews for a week, and everyone as soon as as soon as she was like nominated, everyone knew the game. Everyone knew the game. They knew like the Senate was just gonna say, "Yep." <laughs> like she could eat children. Like she could ha- she could she could be she could embody um, all the conspiracies that like QAnon uh, are, are pumping out. And they will still put her in because you know, just just so they can, ha- there's just so they have the seats, just so they have them lifetime seats for the Supreme Court. Like, man, how do you work with people with no soul? Impossible. Um, continuing on, scientists have found evidence that frozen methane deposits in the Arctic Ocean have started to be released over a large area of the continental slope off the East Siberian coast. What does that mean? Say it with me now. We're fucked. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh, but it's just it, we're fucked. Like I just you have to laugh instead of cry. Honestly, in these in times like those. Um, all right. So since I mentioned Facebook uh, earlier, let's mention. Let's talk about Facebook. So this is an article by Miss uh, Pippa Bailey. It's called "Why I Finally Deleted My Facebook Account After Watching Netflix's Netflix's The Social Dilemma." Um, I have not seen the social dynamic, but I have heard things about it, and, uh, well, maybe, I, I kind of just wanted to talk about, <laughs> I just kind of wanted to talk about my existential dread of deleting Facebook, well, not existential dread, but existential dread about social media, and thinking about deleting Facebook, there you go, um, so, I, but, I, you know, I gave this a read, and I was like, you know what, it's, um, it's kind of interesting, it just sets up quite nicely, so, uh, let's just jump right in, uh, the only industries that refer to their customers as users uh, viewers of the documentary are reminded are tech and illegal drugs. That's great. Uh, the There is a sort of millennial proverb that nothing really happens unless you post about it on social media. I lived by that philosophy for the best part of a decade with compulsive fervor. Fervor? Uh, fervor. Uh, every sleepover, every party, every holiday, photographs, photographed and uploaded to Facebook. I shared, apparently unconcerned by my lack of wit, uh, with the fleeting and inane details of teenage life, mass homework, the latest strictly results, spending the weekend at my dad's. Looking back now, there's sort of a reassuring unself-consciousness uns- to it. Uh, the perfection-hungry social media beast was only beginning to stir, brackets. Uh, I stopped actively posting to Facebook in 2016, even though even the value of its event uh, inv- invites have been swept away by the pandemic. Today, I only use it for voyeurism. Playing out the alternate paths I could have taken through the husbands and houses and 2.4 children of others from school uh, or as guaranteed or as a guaranteed nostalgia trip. There are photographs, thousands of them of snow days, Halloween parties, uh, brackets that didn't matter what you were supposed to be. Your costume had to involve inappropriately little clothing and a lot of back-combed hair on brackets. That's an interesting uh, way of seeing Halloween. Um, and birthdays at Peace to Express. Lambrini, face masks and lush, uh, l- face masks from lush and ill-advised fringes. To look at them, how uh, l- to look at them now, you'd think I've aged poorly, but in reality, there was simply a point a point at which I stopped detagging the pictures I considered unflattering. There are photographs of things I remember fondly: the fireworks night on which we lit uh, what we thought were sparklers, but turned out to be incense sticks. Come on, man. Like, it says on the tin, surely. It says incest, incense, right? 
I, I don't know. Maybe it's because my history of incense from my dad. Like I know which which, but I don't know. Anyhow, uh, reading uh, Reading Festival uh, 2009, at which we cheated by sneaking off to my grand uh, grandmother's house nearby for hot showers and returned clutching parcels of smoked salmon sandwiches. Oh, what a cheat code! As if you call that cheating, I call that finessing. Like if I had that on lock, maybe I'd actually go to a festival of that nature. I don't do camp festivals, ladies and gentlemen. Don't do it. Um, my first experience of backpacking in Austria with a friend who has uh, since passed away. But there are photographs too of things uh, long since forgotten. Fancy dress parties whose themes I struggle to discern. Grotty suburban nightclubs, boys at parties, often inexplicably shirtless, whose faces I don't recognise. For my years, Facebook. For years, my Facebook profile stood as a monument to a life. Uh, that now feels like it belongs to someone else. It is gone now. My account deleted, or at least it will be, once the 30-day calling-off period has passed. I spent hours dredging through my profile in preparation, downloading a copy of every photograph I wanted to preserve. The Spur was a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, not because it contained anything particularly revelatory, but precisely because it didn't. The only industries that refer to their customers as users uh, were we are reminded are tech and illegal drugs. Quote, 2 billion people have thoughts they didn't intend to have because a designer at Google said, this is how notifications work on that screen that you wake up to in the morning, uh, said Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist at Google. What a what oxymoronic um, work title. <laughs> design ethicist at Google. What a title. Uh, reminding me, of George Orwell, quote, power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing, unquote. How grim we conferred before picking up our mobile phones and beginning to scroll once again. There was nothing the social dilemma told us that we didn't already know. We know that the hollow positive reinforcement and the self-medication of constant distraction are bad for us. We know about the privacy missteps, the data mishandling, our minds for sale, and yet we do nothing. There is something unavoidably, unavoided, fucking hell, unavoidably dystopian, don't know why I struggled that word, unavoidably, there you go, uh, dystopian about consciously letting it happen to us, simply because apathy and laziness tug us down. Of course, I cannot pretend that deleting Facebook wasn't the convenient option. The time I stopped posting it coincides rather neatly, uh, with when I joined Instagram, and won't be giving up that up so easily, uh, giving up that so easily. But for too long, I have treated like I have treated like a harmless, inanimate photo album, a data store that is neither passive nor neutral. Deleting my profile felt like a loss because it kept the in- intimate details of a life I no longer remember. But therein lies the horror. Facebook knows more about me than I do. Some things are better left private enjoyed and with time forgotten so shout out to Pippa Bailey on that one and yeah you know what right um I went to um this actually coincides with a lot of things I did recently actually so um I went to uh shout out to my boy Tyler um he's uh he's uh officially going to be a dad in a few in uh, six six or five months I forget the number um half a year basically give or take and um, he wanted to link up with a couple of us, um, and uh, you know we did. Um, you know, just a few of us, about five of us, um, and you know we spent the whole night 
um, in a interesting state of mind. Like, like I feel like we all knew that, and this is kind of a minor tangent, but I will get back to the point of Facebook and social media in general. Um, we we had this um, innate feeling, uh, but you know, between all of us that we were all aware of, right? In of this in this moment of like you know linking up for the first time since lockdown and since a while to be honest like a while before that as well uh maybe for the first time this year i'm i'm, I'm trying to think to be honest um you know for most of us anyway obviously i linked up tyler with them in like, february i think uh, that was the last time but yeah you know since february guaranteed right it's for all of us right and i and i said to them i said you know the reason why we can ha- i said to them the reason why we can enjoy this moment so much and the reason why we relish these moments so much, especially now, you know, at the age of 24, going on 25 for most of us, is that we know, you know, we we know where we all stand in life. We all know what we're doing. Um, and we all know that we're all busy. And it is what it is on that front. But, you know, when we do in, inevitably link up again, we will make the most of it. And, you know, I think we did. We really did make the most of it. It was one, you know, the best nights of the year for me personally. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, you know, a, a woman puked right behind me while walking simultaneously, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she did it. How do you puke and walk at the same time? Like, if I'm going to vomit, I know when I'm going to vomit. And I'm like, I lean over and I'm preparing myself. I'm like, you know what I mean? She just went, she just, like, while walking, I was just, dumbfounded I was just like how do you do that like it's, it's just click to just click bloom like click button puke like for me it comes like in a wave like I can feel it come in like for 10 minutes I need to like just like if I'm gonna do it I need to sit down for like 10 minutes and just breathe and then if I do it I do it if I don't I don't you know what I mean I just prepare for that shit but anyway that's neither here nor there I'm getting into two tangents and uh, that's get that's a bit too deep that's inception level deep um so going back to the original point um you know we had this we we had that link up and it was severely enjoyable and the only pictures that were taken was uh, by my boy George and you know he popped it on Facebook right and you know I'm not exactly one of those people that I'm just like please don't put me on Facebook you know what I mean Maybe in time I'd be like that, but to be honest, I'm on Facebook still, so what's the point of having that kind of attitude? But I feel like for Facebook especially, and I had this conversation with other people uh, recently about like social media, and um, you know, for 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 most people on social media is for two things: um, is to either inform or perform, right? And you know, sometimes I get a bit disillusioned by people performing. You know, there's levels to that, and sometimes it's just like, okay, guys, it's, we get it, we get it. Perform, yeah, okay, yeah. You know I mean, it's just once you realise that, once you realise social media is built for those two things. You know, as a quote unquote user, slap, slap in my wrist, get the social media. Ugh, there we go, uh, in me. <laughs> you know, once you realise, and you know, and and look at tweets or Instagram posts or Facebook messages, whatever, or uh, Reddit posts. If you look at, if you sieve those two, uh, all of those, everything, if you sieve it all into those two things, inform and perform, 
you start to get really, and this is just me, so I don't want to say you guys, you know, start to get it, but, you know, just, just imagine, right, for me personally, I've just started to really, really sometimes push back on the performing art side of it, um, the performance side of it, because you ask yourself, why are you posting this? And, you know, I do it too sometimes, you know, I post a couple of things here and there, you know, just the odd hot take, whatever, you know, just because just I feel like it. But, you know, it's performance. I want to perform, you know what I mean? And, you know, in some ways this is performing, but, you know, that's that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> this is social media, let's just stick right here. But, um, you know, getting to the crux of the argument, um, talking about Facebook especially, there was a time when I was like, I think... Uh, like during uh, I don't know it was like a four year period where I stopped using Facebook and I say stop using Facebook in a in a generic sense I mean like actually go on there and look at other people's posts and stuff like that most of the time I was just on Instagram consistently posting and this was before Instagram was part of Facebook so I was like I was rinsing Facebook bro I was one of those people that rinsing Facebook I had an iPod touch I had a camera on my phone I rinsed it horribly um, if you go past like twenty sixteen on my in, on my IG, it's just it's just shit. It's just garbage. <laughs> it's just garbage. But you know, I did have a clean out one time last year, and you know, I kept most of it because it's just good nostalgia for me. Um, but regardless of that, I don't know why I'm on Facebook anymore. Um, I, I've I've just always asked that question for years of why I'm on Facebook. Um, and partly, I feel like it's just because if I have like any career stuff to lash, like the podcast, um, that's basically what I use it for now, um, maybe apart from the occasional news share, news clipping I want to share, but I don't post like, you know, um, paragraphs like I used to, um, you know, I have the podcast for that now, I don't really need it, um, but there's some innate things I feel like I need, I use it for, um, you know, like I said, mainly the podcast, Fifth Element related stuff, but I don't know who actually, you know, uh, interacts with that kind of stuff. My Most of my interactions come through Twitter and Instagram, so I don't know. I don't know, really, to be honest. And, um, you know, there will come a time, and when it happens, um, I will probably flex that on here and go, ha, ah, got rid of Facebook. Everyone get rid of Facebook. I'm going to be elitist because I've got rid of Facebook. No, obviously I'm not going to do that. But yeah, there will come a time. And uh, it will come soon, hopefully. But like Miss Bailey put, to be honest, it's a lot of monotony. Um, I do want to get some of my stuff, you know, from Facebook off of it and like download it and just put it somewhere in a hard drive. So, I, you know, if I want to have a look at it someday or lash it to my kids or whatever, or frame it even, probably not, because the qualities of photos are shit, um, it, I just want that, you know, just for the nostalgia, but, um, it's a lot of tedium, it will be a lot of tedium, but, uh, one day, I'm gonna dedicate a day just to do it, and, uh, hopefully it'll come soon, and, uh, I hope you guys will come soon as well, because, uh, I just don't see the need in Facebook anymore. Now, Twitter and Instagram... Oh, that's a whole different kettle of fish, and we're not going to get into that, so let's just move on. (laughs) 
So let's hop on the sports and uh, we're going to talk about some NBA stuff. And uh, we've got a little commentary here from Mr. Eaton Thomas. And it's called The NBA's Coaching Dilemma. This is via uh, The Undefeated. And I just found this mad interesting considering uh, the coaches carousel that's going on right now. Uh, most recently, Doc Rivers has gone to Philadelphia and Tyron Lou has gone to the LA Clippers. Well, he was at the LA Clippers, I think. Excuse me, already. So uh, now he's become the head coach of them. Uh, excuse me, I just drank some water, so I'm, uh, 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 you know, just uh, getting up some air. But um, yeah, so uh, well, without further ado, let's just jump right in because I find it um, interesting talking about black coaches in a black league, um, and uh, it's just it's just fascinating to me. It's just fascinating to me. Um, right, we'll start with this, uh, start with this uh, with the LA Clippers officially hiring Tyron Lue to be their head coach this week. The number of black head coaches in the NBA is now at six out of 30 teams. In a league where nearly 80% of players are black, that is troubling because is invalu- because because it is invaluable for players to have a coach who can relate to them. I'm not suggesting that all white coaches have issues relating to black players, but in my personal experience in the NBA, that was definitely the case. I recently sat down with my former Washington Wizards teammate, Larry Hughes, and we discussed our dis- experiences Anna both Doug Collins, who is white, and Eddie Jordan, who is black. Hughes, Iris, uh, I reminisced, Hughes and I reminisced about a failed attempt by Collins to relate to his players. Nelly's song Dilemma with Kelly Rowland to come out, and Hughes had a cameo in the music video. Uh, he put in brackets, good song, and it is a good song. It's a classic. I love you, and I need you, Nelly, I love you, I do. Alright, <laughs> I got waited to. I was, I was just so close to just singing the whole damn chorus, but let's just stop there because I'm gonna go off. I have them pipes. Um, <laughs> Kelly uh, Collins uh, comes into the training room rapping and dancing like crisscross back in the day, lifting up his knees and pointing his hands to the floor. Uh, brackets, young people may not remember this image, but that's the best way I can describe it. I'm brackets. Saying to everyone, I know the song uh, Nelly Kelly, right? I'm hip, I'm down. And attempting to wrap the hook. And he literally put the hook on there. <laughs> I'm not going to see. I'm not going to see. Picture that for a moment. A 50-year-old white man coming into a training room filled with black players trying to rap. We all just looked at him. Some snickered, while others, like me, were in utter disbelief. There was an awkward silence. Then Collins turned around and went back to his office. It was Christian Leitner who said, What the hell was that? As we all burst into laughter. Uh, but what Collins was attempting to do was what many white coaches have had difficulty doing, relating to players, relating to black players. Now, not all attempts are epic failures like this one, but I have uh, seen my share of misses. Coach Jordan, on the other hand, will simply pull you to tell, pull you to the side or into his office and just talk with you. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel manufactured, and he actually connected with guys. Hughes said he didn't have that connection with Collins. Quote, When I was with Doug, he would always ask me, Are you okay? Is everything okay? He was just nervous around me because of my demeanour, and it would make him nervous, unquote. I can relate to that because Collins didn't know how to communicate with me either. Some of his former assistant coaches later told me that uh, I made him uncomfortable because he couldn't get a read on me and didn't know what box to put me in. And that made him nervous. So my question is, how do you coach people you are nervous around? For me, having that connection with Jordan was crucial. It built a relationship and a trust that translated on the courts. 
During my time with the Wizards, I released my first book of poetry, More Than Nephi. I was also performing spoken word, delivering speeches all over Washington about politics, racism and police brutality. Coach Jordan sometimes asked me about my thoughts and opinions on certain topics and just listened to me. He would share his experiences and we would just talk. He showed a genuine interest in what I was interested in and we connected. That's how you develop a relationship with a coach, simply by communicating. And that translated on the court as well because of our communication during games. What he specifically wanted out of my position and the role he wanted me to play. I trusted him. So even during the times where I wasn't, uh, when I wasn't getting as much playing time as I wanted to, and he told me that I had, out, had to outwork who was playing in front of me to earn more playing time, I was able to trust him and implement exactly what he wanted. That resulted in me being the preferred centre despite being four or five inches shorter than our starting centre. All that happened because of communication and trust. Again, I'm not saying that all white coaches are nervous around black players. You see white coaches with great connections to black players. Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors is a perfect example. Stan Van Gundy, who was recently hired by the New Orleans Pelicans and who recent, whose recent willingness to speak out on activism has connected him with players on a level that probably far surpasses his previous stints in Orlando and Detroit. And just to be clear, I'm not someone who believes Steve Nash got the job in Brooklyn because of white privilege. That was simply because Kevin Durant, who developed a relationship with Nash when he was a special assistant in Golden State, pushed for him to get the job and Kyrie Irving co-signed. Facts. Uh, but what I witnessed and experienced in Washington with my white coach versus what I experienced with my black coach was worlds apart. And in today's, today's world, there is a need for black leadership. Say what you want about Doc Rivers' performance in the, uh, with the Clippers in the 2020 playoffs. But his presence in the buzzle, buzzle, uh, bubble was crucial for players. He could relate to them in ways others couldn't. There's a reason a lot of white coaches send the black assistant coach to be a buffer with players. Oh, you re- that's, a, that's a word. Go have a look at every uh, huddle, right? And, or every, every just like co- uh, bench, right? And you see always that white coach and they always have a black assistant with them. Or they always have an assistant of colour with them. It's never a white assistant. That is a big fact. Most of the time, it's always an assistant of colour. Go look for yourself. Go look for yourself. I trust me. Most of the time, if it's a white coach, there is a black assistant or an assistant of color. Guarantee it. Guarantee it all the time, every time. That's a, that that little that little bit. That's a word. Anyway, quote: Who can normally do that? Hugh said. It's usually people who look like us, how swag like us. They know how to translate and know how to play both sides. And they typically are not using the white assistant coaches in that role because they can't play both sides. But it's the black guy because he can play both sides. That's how we've grown up. That's been our culture. We've had to go from one side to the other side very quickly. Um, uh, what's, the, what's the word? Uh, the term is double consciousness. Uh, have a Google of that, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to look into that more. Because um, it's a legit thing. Legit thing. Code switching? Legit. Um, we've had to go from one side to the other side very quickly. And if you can relate... Uh, and be that guy. T. Lou is one of those guys. He went from being that connector to leading those guys to a championship, unquote. If NBA teams uh, look to black assistant coaches to have someone relate to the players, why not just make them head uh, the head person, the one who can actually relate? Good question. Uh, why do we continue to see coaches who have proven themselves unable to connect to players be recycled where, while uh, certain black coaches who have led success uh, who've had success on the court and with players 
aren't given opportunities. Assistant coaches Randy Brown, Greg Buckner, Sam Cassell, Jaron Collins, Howard Isley, Darvin Ham, Tim Hardaway Sr., Popeye Jones, Jamal Mosley, Ed Pickney, Pickney, um, Ihime Udoka, um, who is married to Nia Long. Why do I know that? You know why. Wes Unsell Jr. and Nick Van Exel are among the candidates who should get an, get an opportunity. Mark Jackson, meanwhile, last coached in the league in 2014. Many of his former players in Golden State spoke highly of him, including Steph, including Steph Curry, Clay Thompson and Andre Iguodala. Steve uh, Kerr has also given Jackson credit for making the Warriors a great defensive team, going from 27th in the league defensive efficiency to 4th in this final season. And fun fact, the first ever bet I placed, official bet that I placed um, with my own money was for the year after Mark Jackson got fired for the Golden State Warriors to win the championship at 33-1 to 1, and your boy won it. Just big flex, just that one flex. <laughs> That's the only gambling dub I've ever gotten. <laughs> and I did like three more after that. Uh, where am I at? Where am I at? Where am I at? There were nine coaching vacancies this offseason. Seven have been filled so far, only with two, only with only two black head coach uh, candidates getting jobs. Byron Scott, last coach for the Los Angeles Lakers in 2016, he once suggested that more players should advocate for black coaches to get head coaching jobs, like Kobe Bryant did for him. Maybe that's the solution. All right, that's the whole that's, uh, well, my entirety of the article, pretty much. Um, and yeah, I find I, just those just those two things, right? Just two things I'll take out there: the fact that. You know, you have all these assistant coaches of color, and you know we name. I think he named all of them, right? All those assistant coaches of color. So if you get in them to be that personality, to you know, in, if you need to code switch, you need a code switch. Why not just make them the head coach? Why not? Why not? If there's a vacancy, especially if it's in the exact same team, why not make them? Why not just upgrade them like that? You know, and it's always good to have that person. Um, you know, in any business, right, to have the upgrading instead of bringing someone in who's never, you know, been a part of the culture before, it's different, of course, so why not be encouraged to just, like, say, all right, black assistant coach over there, might as well just give him a go ahead coach, why not, he knows the players already, he already has a rapport of them, uh, a rapport with them, so why the hell not, why the hell not, and, uh, you know, that last point in terms of Byron Scott talking about players, you know, obviously Kevin Durant had his reasons for getting Steve Nash on and you know by all means and you know I don't subscribe to the Steve Nash got it because of white privilege thing I think I do think there's a um there's a hall of fame player resume privilege there which never well, not always which not always I mean to say um translates to the coaching side of course you know people like uh, Jason Kidd haven't ha- hasn't had really you know he's a hall of famer he's one of the best point guards of all time Hasn't really had the best um, coaching, uh, head coaching um, uh, uh, re- resume. So, you know, it doesn't happen with all of them. And uh, we'll see how it goes with Steve Nash. Um, but, you know, <laughs> he could have easily just gone like, you know, hey, black head coach, him. Do him, like, pick him. like Because <laughs> clearly, KD has that power in terms of Brooklyn right now. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. Um, I don't, I, I really don't think it's um, as... As much as grey area as people would like to think, I think there's a lot of black and white to this. Um, you know, just simply put, if you're going to hire these people as assistant coaches, and clearly you're doing it for a specific reason, I'm not saying that's the main reason, but it's a genuine reason to have a uh, have a coach, an assistant coach of color, to just like you know have that rapport with black players 
uh, in, just in case the white, just in case the white coach is like you know fifty, sixty odd and doesn't know shit. You know, I'm not saying people like Greg Popovich don't know shit, but you know, it's still a disconnect there in some way. Is always going to be, um, no matter how small it is, it's going to be a disconnect. Disconnect. Just hide the dudes. Just hire the dudes. So we move on to film and TV, and uh, this is a great little piece I found. Um, so for those who don't, uh, actually, I meant to, I meant to say this, like. Uh, I meant I meant to put this in a week where, but um, well I couldn't because it was five. But um, there was like a I think a four, like four, like four pe- a few people died. Um, uh, yeah, four pe- a few people died. Uh, you know, trying to cross the channel and like four of them were youths or something like that. And they're all and every time that happens now, it reminds me of um a joke that Frankie Boyle made on a uh, on New World Order. And uh, he, he basically said, like, paraphrasing, like, uh, the only time, like, Pretty Patel gets off is when she hears a, uh, <laughs> when she hears a raft in the sea deflate. Ah, <laughs> oh, I was literally thinking about that, right? And then, uh, and then I actually saw this particular article. And uh, this is, this it has something to do with New World Order, because the joke was made on the show. Um, but not by Frankie. It was actually made by Miss Sophie Duker, and uh, she gets into the joke in the article, and it's written by her, so via Bustle. It's called "In 2020, the rules are still different for Black comedians," um, and easily just because it said Black female comedians as well, because it just went way deeper in that. But we'll just go with Black comedians for the moment. But uh, let's just jump right in because it's, uh, it's a very, very fascinating uh, piece. Uh, it's the future. Hoverboards exist. Smallpox is eradicated, and there's so m- many cute nicknames for white people, from Karens to Gammons. There is there's a gamut of euphemisms at your disposal, each cheeker than the last. Other ethnicities tend to receive words that silence a room, slurs heavy with historical hate, whereas white jokes tend to be trends, restocked each season and published uncensored all over the shop. So mainstream, they're even used by particularly witty whites about themselves. From American stand-up Jack. Jeff Foxworthy identifying as redneck back in the 80s to Louis C.K. saying being white is clearly better in 2008. There's a rich tradition in white comics being self-deprecating about the quirks and often the perks of caucasity. When a famous presenter uses a white uses white as a byword for uncool, oh, excuse me, or an un, or an iconic comedian raps about white mums day uh, day drinking and sleeping with policemen, crowds laugh out loud. And the man barely bats an eyelid. Uh, the man being the man, man. Uh, because taking the piss doesn't cancel out privilege. Punching up bruises, egos only. Everyone gets that, right? Anti-blackness is nothing new. But the growing global rejection of some of its most recent atrocities is shaking bullies to their core. They panic the marginalised black people if treated with humanity and respect might turn out to be just like them. Tyrants. The only alternative they can... They imagine to current racial inequality is tit for tat. Progress, they hate to see it. This paranoid fear of a black planet, Wakandan uprising, black billionaire militia, helmed by wild-eyed Oprah, has turned the bullies into hypersensitive snowflakes. To put it bluntly, racists can't take a joke. 
They will cry. They will cry hate speech rather than concede a chuckle, attempting to silence anyone they deem subversive. With comedians, a funny tinge marks you out as a target, but running your mouth about race makes you public enemy number one. Despite countless POC stand-ups delivering mic drop routines about why reverse racism doesn't exist, see Alma Rahman. Uh, it doesn't stop us being piled on disproportionately for tongue-in-cheek routines, tame tweets, and things we never actually said. While the dust was settling after uh, Diversity's dance, I was singled out for a joke made during a discussion on Frankie Boyle's New World Order, entitled, Black Lives Matter glosses over the complexity of a world where we all need to come together and kill Whitey. <laughs> oh, I love the headlines. Uh, the discussion was prolonged, more than 90 minutes, though it was later edited down. Ah, they talked for 90 minutes about that. God, I, I need that uncut. I need that uncut. Put it on a podcast, I will definitely listen to that. Give it to me in a podcast form, I will listen to all 90 minutes of that, trust me. Passionate and appropriately peppered with enough LOLs to avoid pious sermon territory. Midway through, I made the obvious point that, quote, we don't really mean that we want to kill Whitey before quipping, we do... Nah, not today. The statement was pre-approved by white producers, signed off by the Beeb, BBC for those that don't know, and written like, written using language uh, directly lifted from the motion. Uh, brackets, a motion put forward by a host, a white comedian. Uh, after the group laughed, I clarified my understanding of Kill Whitey. Quote, whiteness is a capitalist structure. It benefits itself. It hurts white people. Uh, it hurts non-black people. It hurts black people. Unquote. Didn't seem like a radical take, to be honest. Uh, what right-thinking person wouldn't want to eradicate a system predicated upon racial inequality? The program aired, thousands watched, and barely mentioned that moment. I and just as, as a total like, just this is me talking, by the way. Honestly, like when when the joke came through, I, I you know I had a chuckle and I didn't really bat an eyelid to it. I didn't really, I didn't even know it really know that people were getting triggered over this. This is a bit. I'm I'm surprised at this to be honest, but in some ways I shouldn't be obviously. Um, uh, where's the, the, the thousands watching Betty get mentioned that moment? All shows get some blowback. I'm guessing not even Nana Nana friendly antiques roadshow can escape the piping hot eye of the couch potato. But this episode complaints were minimal. No nowhere near enough to register on the radar for an official off official offcom response. Yet a scared, sad, cynical someone uh, smelt subversion and fumed. Then came the right-wing media storm. They knew Kill Whitey would get clicks, but readers were already aware that New World Order was quote-unquote uh, quote edgy, uh, meaning even by their competitively low standards, that alone wasn't news. So what if they clipped the little black girl with the big afro saying it, portrayed it as their own, uh, portrayed it as their own disgusting, divisive double standards? Six days later, the story trickled with sinister ease from far-right blogs to mainstream tabloids. Self-appointed defenders of whiteness heard the biggest bugle call. Cue your girl being name-checked by the indignation influencers. The kind of human... Well, that's an interesting word. Effluvium? Great word. Effluvium. Uh, who earned their daily bread by whipping their followers into a frothy mouth frenzy. Disgraced comedy grandpa Jim Davidson recited a bizarre limerick on his YouTube channel, which implied the b implied boys gang, uh, attending my gigs wanted to fuck me. The Westminster wag Sarah Vine quoted MLK in a national newspaper with one touch typing hand shit stirring with the other. 
and various other alleged free speech enthusiasts pearl clutch for clout all in an effort to incense people who hadn't watched the clip had never seen the show and couldn't care less about context next up my socials clogged with un- um, uh, upstanding citizens calling me a quote viral a vile racist whore unquote posting monkey emojis and swastikas and asking quote my infant son is white do you want him to die unquote uh, the gentleman who asked no i don't want your child to die but judging by the actions of his father brackets anoy- anonymously sending abuse to women he doesn't know abram brackets i don't want his mother uh, i do want his mother to win sole custody oh nice nice good comeback uh, the bullies wanted me sacked, shamed, silenced. But what actually triggered the poor dears wasn't ri- me riffing off a on a borrowed phrase. It was race being discussed with maturity and without self-consciousness. The manufactured outrage tactically re- deployed white noise. It was damaging because it drowned out not only my point about white supremacy harming people of every race, but also many astute observations from my hilarious, eloquent colleagues. Watching the panel veer from impassioned to flippant while discussing BLM and still staying friends until the end made secret bigots cringe because they just don't have the range. I could wang on about why my esteemed colleagues kill whitey works comedically. Sorry for hearing my desk right there, this is annoying. Um, if it's filled with clacky consonants, so it's very fun to say the E adds a, in whitey, adds a whimsical bounce. And the sentiments interrogates oppressive power structures relevant to practically every person on the planet. But it's not my joke, it's not the point. And bullies tend to be less fussed about what black women actually say, more than the fact that we're speaking. So white people, if you want to rib Caucasians, you've nothing to fear. Fill your boots, or, if stereotypes are to be believed, your socks and sandals. <laughs> That was good. Raise that pumpkin spice latte to the sky and drink deep. Say whitey, shout cracker, honk if you're honky. <laughs> but if your comedy is a shade darker, if your presence on a panel makes bigots hangry, uh, horny and angry, um, and if you believe the basic truth that black lives should matter as much as everyone else else's, do it anyway. Life is short, puns are fun, and Mama wants to roast some gammon. Oh, and I was very eloquently put by Miss Sophie Duke right there. And yeah, but honestly, like listening, uh, I didn't even know that was happening. Like, I didn't even know none of that was happening. Um, and I guess I have to follow Sophie Duke in in, in a sense to actually, uh, or 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 you know, go to these places, these dark dingy places where people are getting triggered over kill over a black woman saying kill whitey um maybe i should uh um open my bubble a bit and uh you know get into some right wing you know reactionary bullshit on youtube maybe i don't know uh maybe i need to yeah um what's the word um expose myself to that kind of uh garbage but uh yeah man it's just it's just the smallest of things, honestly. Like people can get triggered over the smallest of shit, and um, in some ways, this actually links back to the Facebook thing, and uh, and the whole concept that I that I put forward in terms of perform or inform. 
are these right-wing people informing their people, or are they just performing and just saying, look, look, something we need to be angry about, something we need to be angry about, go, 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 all, all, um, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the word, uh, you know, everyone to battle stations, uh, you know, <laughs> Twitter fingers at the ready, keyboard, f- keyboard warriors assemble, <laughs> you know what I mean, like, is it informing or is it performing? Obviously, I would go down the performing routes, which is why I don't, you know, this is why I don't um, indulge myself in this kind of bullshit. And to be honest, this is why I don't indulge in, in you know, the, in most garbage. Like, um, I don't know, like, a, for example, Mindy Kaling wearing a, a shirt the other day. I think it had, like, Sojourner, um, Harriet, uh, obviously Harriet Tubman, and... Um, some other uh, black woman, and then it said Kamala, uh, and it's just like, why, why do that, you know what I mean, it's just, it's just unnecessary performance, it really is unnecessary, you're not informing anyone, you're just wearing a shirt, and you just want to be, I don't know, you just want to be part of the conversation, it's just unnecessary to me anymore, it's just why, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting very jaded about all of it, um, let alone the right-wing bollocks coming through, and, and, shitting on Sophie Juca for saying kill white even though that was part of the whole context of the fucking conversation of the whole fucking show like come on guys like literally watch the whole 10 minute 10 or so minutes of the whole thing and it's great it's a great conversation it's very in-depth you know it's very funny as well but it's it's, it's very in-depth it's a good balance of informing and performing in my view and that's what makes a show like that very good um it's the same with stuff like have all good news for you I feel like you know there's some good informing there but there's also just some obviously good good old ribbing. You know what I mean? Just some good old satire, satiristic ribbing. You know, some people could do it well, some people can't. I feel that's a good uh, balance to have that kind of stuff. But man, shout out to Sophie Duke, man. Honestly, like, I, I couldn't even imagine the garbage she was she was she was getting given. Honestly, like that's just, just just for saying just for saying kill whitey and then and then straight after actually breaking it down in a sense that everyone can understand but just not enough for people just not enough just gotta get them twitter fingers ready just have to get them off have to get them off it's clearly a quote for some people Lastly, we head on to the la- uh, second of uh, two life topics, um, and this is by Mr. Daniel Trilling, who is the author of Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, and Bloody Nasty People, The Rise of Britain's Far Right. So, do you want to know where I'm going with this? <laughs> um, so, he wrote this uh, little opinion piece called, uh, why, is the- why is the UK government suddenly targeting critical race theory? Um, so I feel like I should have, uh, I, I expressed more regret now, not talking about the um, great explainer that I found about critical race theory. Um, but to be honest, guys, you can look it up, just type, just look up what is critical race theory. And obviously it'll be explained in a little bit here. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some meaty stuff. And uh, obviously this kind of harks back to the, um, to them bullshit BLM conversations that I talked about the other uh, last episode and I didn't really have time to talk about because it happened literally on the day I was recording 
and it was um that woman who's um part of the Tories and like on behalf of them she was going like you know critical race theory shouldn't be taught in schools I'm like are we seriously talking about this in 2020 how stupid can you be yada 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 you know drivel 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 um but yeah this is um this kind of moves the conversation forward a little bit and a very interesting um way of talking about things so let's just without further ado just jump right in until this month, according to the parliamentary record, Hansard, the term, uh, the, the term critical race theory had never once been uttered in the House of Commons chamber. By the end, um, oh, Hansard is the parliamentary record, okay. I got a bit confused um, in the sentence, but anyway, yeah. The term critical race theory had never once been uttered in the House of Commons chamber. That's interesting, that's interesting, continuing on. Uh, by the end of the day, on 20th October, however... It was of a, uh, and that's kind of interesting because uh, you know it's the twenty eighth October as I record, so it's actually the day before. Interesting. Um, by the end of the day, uh, on the twenty fourth time, however, it was of such importance that the government declared itself unequivocally against the concept. "Quote: We do not want teachers to teach their white pupils about white privilege and inherited white guilt." Warned the Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch. That's who she is. I remember her name now. At the end of a six-hour debate to mark Black History Month, what a fucking depressing debate to Black History Month. Fucking hell. Oh, I couldn't imagine being in that room for six hours. Fucking leave after 20 minutes. Um, quote, any school which teaches these elements of critical race theory or which promotes partisan political views such as defunding police without offering a balanced treatment of opposing views is breaking the law, unquote. And obviously I read that quote last week. Still bullshit. Strictly speaking, critical race theory is an academic field that originated in the US around 40 years ago. As a British academic Kojo Karam notes, it began as an attempt by legal scholars to understand why black communities experienced discrimination in the criminal justice system, even though they were fully guaranteed equal rights. Today, the term has become a kind of shorthand in US politics for an approach to race relations that asks white people to consider their structural advantage within a system that has, historically, been profoundly racist. And you can definitely take all of that and put it into UK, but anyway, continuing on, uh, the last bit anyway, you know, the considering the system and, you know, that's definitely UK, just, they started that shit, <laughs> they were the architects of that, and US just put it on steroids, anyway, uh, in the wake of this year's Black Lives Matter protests, however, critical race theory has also been the target of anti-leftist witch hunt, witch hunt ordered by Donald Trump in September. Uh, the US president ordered federal agencies and contractors to stop funding any training programs that drew, drew on quote-unquote race-based ideologies, a range of ideas crudely put that suggest racism persists in today's America. Quote, this is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue, Trump tweeted. Please report any sightings so we can quickly extinguish, unquote. In the UK, critical race theory is a relatively marginal intellectual current, a term most people are unlikely to have encountered until now. Yet the Conservative government, no matter, uh, no doubt glancing across the Atlantic, has decided to co-op this bogeyman uh, into the culture war it enthusiastically pursues on several fronts, whether it's against quote-unquote lefty lawyers who represent migrants in court, or against the quote-unquote North London Metropolitan Liberal Elite. Oh, that's a meaty fucking phrase. North London Metropolitan Liberal Elite. Ooh, fucking hell. That's a meaty phrase. Um, damn, when the Black Lives Matter protest spread to the UK this summer, they ignited a fraught, uh, fraught national conversation about racism. Many responded by offering solidarity to thousands of young black people who took to the streets to protest at their own experience of racism 
and demand that Britain more, more fully acknowledge the injustices in its history. But it also prompted a backlash, one that the government has increasingly thrown its weight behind, seeking to portray the movement as dangerously extreme. Last month, Culture Secretary Oliver, Oliver Dowden oh, told museums that they risked losing public funding if they took down statues as a result of pressure from campus. Oh, fucking hell, what a threat. The Department for Education told schools in England that they were not to use materials produced by anti-capitalist groups or teach victim narratives uh, that were harmful to British society. What kind of British society, boss? Elaborate for me. Elaborate for me. Anyway, in his Conservative Party conference speech earlier this month, Boris Johnson accused Labour of being on the side of those who, quote, want to pull statues down to rewrite the history of our country to make it look more politically correct. Unquote. This week's parliamentary debate provided an opportunity for some Conservatives to push the issue further. Tom Hunt, the MP for Ipswich, accused the leaders of Black Lives Matter of having quote, stray beyond what would be, what should be a powerful yet simple and unifying message in opposition to racism that still exists in our society, in a cultural Marxism, the abolish, uh, the abolition of the nuclear family. Wow, the nuclear family. Are we really talking about that right now? Okay. All right. I thought I, was a fuck, I thought I'd fucking teleported to the 1960s all of a sudden. Fuck. I thought I just, I thought I'd just read a script of Mad Men. Are you fucking kidding? I can't help but stop sometimes with this shit. Anyway, uh, New York nuclear family defunding the police and overthrowing capitalism. Ooh, don't tell them. We want to. Um, unquote. Hunt was one of two Tory MPs to decry cultural Marxism during the debate. The last time a politician did this, uh, Suella Braverman, now Attorney General in 2019, she was criticised by the Board of Deputies of British Jews for using a term often associated with far-right anti-Semitism. This is a context in which the government's sudden attack on critical race theory needs to be seen. There is a scant evidence there is scant evidence is associated concepts are widespread in Britain school uh, British schools. On the contrary, a report published in June by the racial quality think tank the Runny Me Trust, this is I think we talked about this uh, I think we talked about the exact report a few months ago, uh, found that many teachers felt they lacked the resources and training to teach about racism with confidence. Since Trump began his assault, and, and just to stop, just to stop, let's stop right there. Let's just stop right there for a quick moment. Stop right there for a quick moment. Okay, just pump the brakes. I'm getting a bit fast. Um, I'm talking fast, <laughs> just so for time, but let me, let me stop for a second, right? And, and, and just pinpoint that. And I'll ask you this question. Why do you think teachers of whatever age, whether it be 25 to 70 something, whatever the retirement age is now, right? Of all that, of all that, of all that, why do you think they feel unequipped to talk about race? And this is just, this is just unaccounting for, you know, whatever race they are, whatever the percentages are on that front, however many teachers are, you know, of quote unquote BME, you know what I mean? Regardless of that, let's miss all that. Just teachers in general, why do you think that they met that the quote unquote many teachers they they felt they couldn't teach uh, teach about racism in, with confidence or lack the resources and training and just general experience. So I want to throw that in as well. Why do you think that? Because they weren't taught racism when they were in school. So 
just just a just a just a pin that towards the many times where I've talked about it in the past year, talking about education, why we should teach our youths about race as soon as fucking possible. Because it'll make, and, and in the long run, when they become teachers, they will know exactly what to talk about and how to talk about it, and they could talk about it with confidence and with the correct sensitivity that they should be able to do. Instead of just giving me my some men and making me say the n-word during a fucking chapter. That was that, that got very personal at the end, but let's continue. <laughs> so Trump began uh, his assault at the end of the summer. However, a handful of right-wing commentators have been trying to Im- uh, import the mole panic into the UK. Of course, they do, mainly via the uh, pages of the Telegraph and Spectator. For the right, wokeness, quote unquote, feels the uh, feel, feels much the same role as political correctness. Uh, might have done in the earlier era. It is a rallying qu- cry against, how do you say, cry, uh, cry against a liberal elite whose values are allegedly being imposed on the an unwilling population. Since 2016, this populist tactic has become a central way to shore up support among the new coalition of voters the Tories have assembled. Its ultimate effect, however, is to deflect any conversation about structural inequality, and not just when it comes to race. One of the right's first responses to Black Lives Matter was to revive the debate about whether white working class boys suffer the greatest avant- disadvantages at school, a topic that has recently returned to, a head- returned to the headlines. Yet when presented with an opportunity this week to materially improve the lives of poorer children across uh, of all backgrounds in what will be an extraordinarily difficult winter by extending free school meals into the Christmas holidays, the Conservatives were dead set against it. Theoretical concepts have used uh, have their uses. And their limits. Does the idea of white privilege, for instance, encourage people to think about racism as a social problem, or as a matter of individual conscience? That's a that's a fucking amazing question. That's a really amazing question. Wow. Okay. Um, how can institutions, particularly schools, foster conversations about injustice, past and present, that ultimately build solidarity and understanding between people? These are important questions, but a government that talks about banning ideas is unlikely to engage sincerely without them. And this is why, and this is my in overall problem with the just the concept of being cons- uh, being conservative about things. Like I've I've said, I'm you know semi conservative about things like hip hop, right? And the reason why I'm like that, and you know I say that in a very glib term, but not exactly because um, if you if if I give you the list of albums I've listened to this year, a majority of them are artists that have you know began their career in the past ten years in a uh, relatively contemporary. You know the only artists I can imagine that are relatively uh, uncontemporary is like Public Enemy, um, Exhibit, um, um, I don't know, uh, fucking Arrested Development. You know what I mean just just uh, Paris, right? You know. <laughs> Not many, right? And, and most of them are relatively contemporary. So when I say I'm, you know, conservative about hip hop, it's more about, um, it, it's more specific. It's not in terms of what I listen to, right? I'm very progressive when I listen to hip hop, right? I'm listening to all the new shit, right? Um, so when I say conservative, I mean it in a different way. But conservatism in this way, in the political sense, and in the, and especially in the, um, in the family sense, and, you know, uh, growth as a person sense, why do you want to be conservative about your life? You don't want to progress in life? I find that highly hustling backwards as a concept. You just want to stay the same, while the world moves along with uh, moves along without you. 
And this is why the Conservatives piss me off politically. Because they keep doing shit that just holds us the fuck back. And, well, the exit for the perfect fucking example. And I'm sorry if I'm shouting, but, you know, well, I'm sorry if I'm loud. I'm not shouting. You know if I'm shouting. But I'm obviously being loud in terms of mic volume. Um, I've, I've recently changed it up, so I'm relatively more clear. But, you know, take the exit, for example. That is the prime example of general conservatism holding us back and in that case going literally backwards. Why the fuck in any way of life would you want to go backwards? And you know, I talked about a nostalgia thing, you know, earlier in the earlier in the episode. I don't want to go back to when I was 15. I really fucking don't. 15 was shit. I don't want to go back. But I remember the good times. Of course I do. But I don't want to go the fuck back. I don't want to go back to any of my life. I don't want to repeat any of it. Well, well, yeah, well, I don't know. That, uh, maybe a bit too much. I don't if, if I want to repeat stuff. But yeah, yeah, I don't want. There may, there may be some stuff I want to repeat. <laughs> but you know, most, most, you know, if you want to say like, oh, if you want to go back to your, if you want to go back to your teenagehood, would you want it? I'm like, no, not really, not really, bro. Because most of the time I was writing, and it was relatively fucking boring. Like, <laughs> seventeen is the most boring fucking year of in existence. I firmly believe that. I I firmly believe that. I don't know why you want to go back. And it's it's, it's just the concept of conservatism doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense. And this is the point when it comes to this. You just want to teach the same old shit in school. What's the fucking point in that? When are you going to teach stuff from the 80s, from the 90s, from the 2000s? This shit needs to be taught. Recent history needs to be taught. You can't just teach people the Tudors, Henry VIII, uh, 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 World War One, World War Two, and that's it. That's fucking garbage. That's really garbage. Conservatism as a concept just pisses me off. And this is a fucking prime example to it. And the exit is the biggest example to it. Because it's literally taking the whole th- concept and just fucking putting it into full use. And the full on all gas no fucking breaks. Literally. And with that said I'll leave it there. From the Fifth Home Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Terry and it's been What's Good. Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music has been visited by Poldor. You can find both of their tunes via their websites in the full show notes. Thanks to Jailbreakers for your ability to use these songs. You can also find their entire Bandcamp discography in the link in the full show notes. Go give them a peep. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. Progress. I should always try and do the same on both fronts. But until the next time... Take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.